My wife does this all the time. It's awesome. It's like, when is the thank you spiral ever going to end? Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bible Geeks Weekly Podcast. This is episode 105. I'm Brian Cheely. I'm Ryan Joy. And thanks so much, everyone, for tuning in. We are wrapping up our discussion of servanthood here on the episode. We've talked about seeing with new eyes, living with humility. Last week, we talked about sacrificial love. And this week, we're talking about showing honor. I think this whole conversation about servanthood has been really helpful for me. I don't know about you. It has. It's been valuable to look at it from these different angles because normally you kind of pack it into just one idea, one sermon or something, mm-hmm. and definitely affected my relationships and how I relate to people. And we're going to talk about relating to people on this episode. And I think this whole time that I've been thinking about servanthood these last few weeks, I've been thinking about going back to like my earliest jobs. Basically, over about a decade ago, I would wake up super early in the morning at the crack of dawn and I would go sling lattes at the Starbucks down the corner from my house. And I loved that job. I enjoyed it so much. But there's probably not a category of people who are more consistently fussy than people who haven't had their coffee yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Guilty. And for sure, we would always run into folks who were just a little bit grumpier than they might normally be during the day. When I was in that job, I really tried to treat people well, and I would try to learn their names because they'd be in every morning, so I'd try to learn who they were, find out what their order was, and maybe even have it ready to go for them before they even paid for their coffee. It was just this kind of enjoyable experience that I had connecting with people and serving people, and I really did love that job. But we've all been in places in our lives where we've interacted with a server who just didn't want to be there, or somebody in customer service who you could tell like this was not what they wanted to be doing, and you didn't feel as a customer like you were respected or you were valued. It's kind of those two ideas that I'm balancing together as I'm thinking about servanthood. Am I, as a servant of Christ and of others, am I honoring and respecting people? Is that woven into the fabric of who I am? Or am I just, would I just rather not be there? Yeah, I started in customer service working at TCBY. Oh, nice. I think that it does teach you something about service. Am I going out into the world with a servant's attitude that I'm trying to honor people to anticipate their needs, Mm -hmm. to find ways of making their day a little better as they walk out of my little sphere of influence. So that's what we're talking about on this episode, showing honor. And let's start off with our first segment, which is like the teacher. And actually, this is a story where honor is not shown to Jesus. And that's in Luke 4, verses 16 through 30. Yeah, here Jesus comes to his hometown in Nazareth And people are used to seeing him there in the local synagogue. This is his home church, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And he sits down and there's a part of the service where anyone gets a chance. Any of the men could stand up to read and he gets the scroll of Isaiah. He unrolls it. This passage is kind of drawn out. It really emphasizes all these details that don't need to be emphasized, I think, (laughs) to create some tension and some building to this moment. He stands up. The scroll is given to him. He unrolls the scroll. He finds the place. And then he reads this passage from Isaiah. And then it talks about how he rolls it back up and he gives it back to the attendant. He sits down and the eyes of everybody are on him. And he says, today... 
this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So hopefully that has you wondering, what is the scripture (laughs) that he read? And it's from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so people are, on the one hand, saying good things about him. Wow, his words are so gracious. He's doing great things. Isn't this Joseph's boy? I thought he was the guy that grew up down the street. And Jesus says, you're going to probably say, hey, physician, heal yourself. Hey, why don't you do some of those big, great miracles you were doing elsewhere Mm -hmm. right here in your hometown? And he says, truly, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And then he tells some stories about Elijah and Elisha and how they left not only their hometown, but left Israel and went to Gentiles to bring the blessing of God. And they didn't like that very much. Oh, no. So they (laughs) chase him out of town. They drive him towards the brow of a hill and they were going to throw him off the cliff. And then he finds a way to pass through their midst and gets out of Dodge. And so that's the story of his, as he grows in fame, how it went for him when he came back home. And what do you see when you look at this story? I see a proximity paradox. Hmm. It's something we see quite often, and I think we all experience it ourselves. Let me give you an example from my own life. I went to high school with someone who went on to be a big star, like a big movie star. I'll specifically remember the last time I saw him in person. (laughs) I was actually working at Starbucks, and he came in to visit me, and he said, I'm going to California. And I was like, you're going to California? (laughs) He's like, I'm going to be in the movies. And I was like, yeah, okay, whatever, dude. (laughs) And then about two and a half years later, he pops up alongside Brad Pitt in a movie. And I'm like, wow, you made it, dude. (laughs) Like, yeah, you did. (laughs) And he's a pretty big movie star. I see him on the screen. I see him on all kinds of paparazzi shots and stuff. But all I can think of is him as an awkward teenager who used to sit at the lunch table with us in the quad. It's like, (laughs) I don't think of him in the way that most people do. It seems kind of like not knowing someone well makes you more likely to treat them as a celebrity because you don't know their backstory. You don't know all the little things that they used to do as a kid and all the silly things that they did growing up. But I think the more proximity you have to somebody, it seems like what Jesus is saying here, the less likely you are to show them honor. And he's talking about it from the perspective of the prophets, but also with him himself, they knew him really well. And so they automatically had a reason. Oh, aren't you Joseph's son? They had a reason not to listen to him. And so I know there are a lot of times where this has shown up in my own life. I'm sure there have been times where I probably haven't treated even members of my own family very respectfully because maybe I didn't view them like I might even view a stranger who I might treat more respectfully at times. And Jesus is not giving them a pass here. He's saying, this isn't a valid reason for you not to listen to me. You need to get past this. This is a problem for you. And so I don't know, maybe I just need to take more time and be more thoughtful when I approach people that I know very well. Don't discount them. Don't throw out their advice or their suggestions just because I know a lot about them. Yeah, that's a lesson I'm trying to teach my two oldest kids, Anna and Asher, (laughs) how they need to treat each other. They are together all the time and they love playing together, but they also hate it and they get frustrated with each other. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Learning to really relate with honor 
to those that you are, see every day is the place where that training happens. And it is really important for us to think about how we honor our siblings, honor our parents, which is one of those groups that specifically noted, mm-hmm. honor our kids and our spouses and our, our best friends and all of that stuff. I was thinking about the first half of this passage and how Jesus talks about the job that he has to do here. His role is to bring a restoration of honor to everyone. And so I was thinking of this scenario. So just imagine this with me. Imagine you're part of a Jewish family that ran into this string of misfortune. Your crops were overrun by a pest, maybe. And then that was compounded years ago by some bad decision you made or one of the men in your family made. And there is this, say, decade-long spiral that landed your whole family in servitude to one of the wealthy, honored families in your area. And now you work the fields that used to belong to you, and all the proceeds go to the rich getting richer. And the kids in the family treat your kids badly as your kids serve them their food and take care of them in all kinds of ways. And your shame is almost unbearable as people shake their head at you, at what you've become, at the stories they've heard about you and how you got here. But all the while, if you're an Israelite, there's one thing that keeps you going and gives you hope. You know that unlike every other nation in the world, in Israel, there's always a year of jubilee around the corner. (laughs) And your kids will someday take their place again among the respected, successful people. Their children won't be oppressed by bad choices that maybe you've made and you will have your debts forgiven and be a landowner again. Mm -hmm. Just imagine how much different the world would be if there was always a year of Jubilee in just about everybody's lifetime. Like every 50 years, everything is reset and your fortunes are completely turned. Servants would be set free and there would be this strange, merciful table turning And this is something we can read about in Leviticus 25, this year of Jubilee. And when Jesus speaks this proclamation in Nazareth, he is declaring a year of Jubilee. If you pay attention to what Isaiah says there, Mm -hmm. he says it's the year of the Lord's favor when people have liberty. But Jesus speaks of four groups in that Isaiah quote, talks about the poor, the captives, the blind and the oppressed, and he brings a reversal of fortunes for all of them. Jesus, the lowly carpenter's son who became king, gives grace and privilege to the humble, letting us eat at the king's table as princes and priests, sons of God most high. Beautiful thought. Yeah. I mean, this had to have been pretty shocking for them to hear. On the other side of history, I think we're seeing This is the greatest thing we could have ever heard. Yes. While we may never have experienced an actual year of Jubilee, understanding what Jesus brought in his movement really was the thing we needed to restore honor to all people. So that was like the teacher. And as we continue on in our episode, let's get into our next segment, which is Here's the Story. Here's the Story. So we're talking about showing honor as good servants here in this episode. And honestly, One of the great stories of showing honor 
comes in the book of Ruth. And so we're going to talk about Ruth here on the episode and tell her story a little bit. Maybe this is a section of scripture more traditionally used for like ladies classes and things. But (laughs) hey, I think this is a story every single person should know front to back. And it's only four chapters. So let's get into it. So chapter one here, we're really introduced to Naomi and her family. And we don't really know a lot about who wrote this book. But we do kind of get a sense that maybe it was written during David's lifetime. If you look at the genealogy at the end of the book and you see how Ruth is included in Jesus' genealogy, it would seem to be written around maybe the time of David. But this is a story of commitment and respect during a time really of just complete uncertainty and grief. And I think a lot of us can probably relate to some of the issues that these characters here in this story are facing. Maybe we've never lost as much as Naomi was going to lose, but we've probably been at a time where we just don't know what the future holds. We don't know what our life is going to look like. And maybe we've had this kind of sense of dread that we see here in this story, but there's hope. And we'll see that here in a couple chapters. But here in chapter one, we're introduced to Naomi and her family, basically, She is with her husband, Elimelech, and so they have two sons who marry two Moabite women during their 10 years or so there in Moab. Unfortunately, Elimelech dies, as do his two sons. And in the culture back then, Naomi is really left without a lot of choices. She has no one to care for her, and that's a real big problem for her. So Naomi has decided, look, I'm going back to Bethlehem. I've heard there's food there. I've heard there's good things back home. So that's where I'm going. And she tells her two daughters-in-law, one of them named Orpah and one named Ruth. She says, look, you guys just stay here. Continue on your lives. Go get married. I'm going to go home. And Orpah seems totally fine with this. She hugs her mother-in-law and goes. And then Ruth just won't let go of her. And she says to her in chapter 1, verse 16, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And that is amazing. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) it is. We read some of that in our wedding vows. That's so good. Just this commitment that Ruth has to her mother-in-law, I think a lot of us, view in-laws maybe as maybe a negative thing sometimes. <laughs> and if my in-laws are listening right now, I love you both dearly, honestly. Amen. But here we see Ruth just totally being devoted to Naomi. And so they returned together to Bethlehem during the harvest and everyone was so excited to see Naomi. And then Naomi basically says, look, I'm not excited. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And this is a throwback, this word in the Hebrew is used quite often throughout the scripture. She's basically saying, look, there's nothing good about this. I don't want to be here. I've experienced tragedy and I am just in a terrible place right now. And so they've come back from Moab and that really sums up chapter one, kind of sets the stage for what takes place next. It does. And after all the tragedy that fills chapter one, we at last see some signs, as you said, of a brighter future in chapter two. First of all, it's harvest time, which is a happy time. Sure. 
And in verse one, we meet a worthy man, Boaz, who is a relative of Ruth's former husband. And God provided for the poor by reserving the remains of the harvest for them. So Ruth could have gathered for her and Naomi anywhere, but she happens to end up in the field of Boaz, the relative which Naomi later identifies as a providential gift of God, one of many happy coincidences throughout this book. And she catches Boaz's eye, and he asks about her, who is this young lady? And he gets her deets, so to speak. (laughs) She's She's the Moabite woman that came back with Naomi, and he says to her, don't go gleaning anywhere else. And he goes above and beyond in his kindness as he tries to make sure she's protected from any trouble. While she's gleaning, he gives her access to the water that his workers draw. And Ruth is overwhelmed by this kindness. She falls on her face. She asks, what makes me so special that you have shown me, a foreigner, this kind of honor? And Boaz says that he admires her character lesson for young people mm-hmm. <laughs> in this love story. It's it's really based in honor and character. And he heard how she left everything in her loyalty to her mother-in-law. And he prays this blessing for her that the Lord of Israel, under whose wings she's come to take refuge, may fully reward her for the kind of devotion that she had. And there are several blessings spoken throughout this book. And I think it's one of the themes of the book that kind of goes underneath the story that plays out because all of these blessings find fulfillment as the Lord answers those prayers throughout the course of the story. And so Ruth returns the honor. She calls herself Boaz's servant. And then Boaz invites Ruth to a dinner date of sorts, (laughs) not to overemphasize the romance here, but not only does he ask her to eat with him and his workers, but he himself serves her, which is an expression of honor from him to her. And then he shows her even more kindness when he instructs his men to let her take more than she was supposed to take. She was allowed to pick up the remains, but he says, let her glean the sheaves and also, why don't you pull out some of what you glean and just just drop it behind? So there's some bonus remnants for her to take home. Just, oh, what was that? Look what, look what fell on the ground there. And she ends up bringing home enough for her and Naomi to live on for uh, several weeks. And now Naomi knows she couldn't come home with that kind of a haul without somebody taking really special notice of her. And when she hears it's Boaz, she prays a blessing, acknowledging that God has shown favor on them and also asking for a blessing on Boaz. She says in chapter two, verse 20, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Then Naomi realizes in that same verse, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And so you can just see the wheels turning in Naomi's mind. As a close relative, Boaz could fulfill another law in Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25 by marrying Ruth and giving Naomi an heir to keep the land in the family that God gave it to. So Ruth gleans in Boaz's field for a couple months, from April to June, from the barley harvest to the wheat harvest. But as you can see, something bigger is starting to begin. (laughs) Well, you saw it pretty much right off the bat when Ruth catches Boaz's eye. There is something there. There's something going on. He's going above and beyond for her. And Naomi really knows it. Whether or not Ruth has an idea, I think she does. But Naomi is going to start playing matchmaker here. This is fertile territory for her 
to play matchmaker between the two. And so she whips up this plan to get the two of them together. So she tells Ruth to go in after Boaz is done working, done eating and drinking. As he's sleeping, go uncover his feet and lay there at his feet, which seems really weird. I mean, this (laughs) does not sound like the typical romantic comedy kind of approach that you might have between two people, but Ruth has basically just agreed to do whatever Naomi tells her. Meg Ryan never laid at Tom Hanks' feet, did she? I don't think <laughs> that ever happened. In the middle of a no. wheat field. <laughs> yeah, that would definitely make you sleepless in Seattle for sure. <laughs> Which is actually what happens in the story. Because he wakes up in the middle of sleeping and finds Ruth sleeping there at his feet. And he doesn't know it's her at first. He's, he's shocked by the situation. I mean, imagine being there alone and waking up having this woman sleeping by your feet. And so he says, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. You read about that in Ruth 3 verse 9. I mean, he seems really honored by this. He realizes that she could have gone after some younger man. Evidently, she's got it going on. I mean, I don't know any other way to put that. Like, she's obviously could have gotten any younger man that she wanted. But apparently she's going after Boaz. And Boaz appears maybe to not have deserved this kind of beautiful woman to come find him. I I don't know. But anyway, we find out that he decides he wants to explore this relationship and see what they can do. He thinks there's some other relative around, though, who could redeem her. And he needs to play by the rules here. He's not going to break the Jewish traditions and the laws. And so he's going to need to go find out whoever this other relative is and find out if he wants to redeem her. And so he heads out to go do that. And in the morning, she kind of in a clandestine way, again, like we talked about in the last episode, there's a lot of clandestine things going on in the Bible, but (laughs) she heads back to Naomi in secret just to, you know, not arouse any controversy or suspicion that this Moabite woman was sleeping in the same room or in the same area as this Jewish man. And so she heads back with food, more food, more barley, and she goes and tells her mother-in-law everything that happened. And the story just continues from there. I think you just like the word clandestine. I do. I'm Find sorry. a way to work it in. It, it was right there. <laughs> I like it. It's like there's spy stories everywhere in the Bible. It is. For sure. <laughs> and it's interesting, too. There's if you look at chapter two and three, they kind of there's parallels all the way through mm-hmm. in the way it plays out between Naomi and Ruth. And so Boaz now goes to the city gate to hold a business meeting about the land rights and continuing that theme of providential coincidences. The closer redeemer just happens to come by. For sure. And Boaz sets the guy up, it seems to me anyways, by going through all the proceedings before he mentions, oh, and the day you get the land rights, you also marry Ruth. And the guy kind of moonwalks his way back out of that deal to protect his own kid's inheritance. And he, uh, official way of signing a contract, both back in those days, evidently, he hands Boaz his sandal. As you do. As you do. (laughs) That's how I bought my house. How about you? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And Boaz calls on the elders as witnesses. He's marrying Ruth. He's perpetuating her husband's inheritance. The elders pray a blessing that Ruth and Boaz will be like the matriarchs and patriarchs of Israel, Rachel and Leah and Perez. And they marry and Ruth has a son and Naomi's emptiness has become fullness for, as people say, your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons 
has given birth to him. Chapter 4, verse 15. That's quite a statement uh, yeah. considering the way that uh, a son was valued back then. And this is the one time that the word love is used in this way, not kindness. Kindness is kind of the theme of the book, but she says, your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. And now Ruth and Naomi have a child to carry on that legacy. And so Ruth and Naomi, the foreigner and the old destitute widow, find honor and joy, which continues the theme that we've been talking about. Really, one of the main themes throughout the whole Bible. And in the closing verses, we're at last introduced to the historical importance of this story. It is David's origin story. David is the last word of the book, which also means as part of Jesus' origin story. It's the story of how a Bethlehem family came to include not only Tamar and Rahab the Canaanite in its line, but also this humble, honorable Moabitess named Ruth, so that the savior of all the world is a Jew with all of these Gentile women in his heritage. It is so cool. I mean, just the interactions that we see here in this story, I mean, you really could just make a movie about this and it would be a great movie. But the way that... Ruth honors her mother-in-law the way that Boaz honors Ruth, the way that Ruth is constantly a respectful, kind, loving woman to almost everybody Mm -hmm. we meet in this story. That's exactly the kind of people that we need to be all the time. Yeah, there's a real carefulness, a real thoughtfulness that each one of them, Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, all take as they're interacting here. There is devotion. There is kindness. There's definitely so much honor. Then there's a respect for God's law. There's Mm -hmm. a willingness to take your time and do things the right way. And then underlying it all is prayer and calling on God's name to bless as he sees fit. And Boaz becomes the instrument through which God answers Boaz's prayer. Boaz prayed for God to put his wing over Ruth and give her security. And then Ruth says, would you put your wing over me and give me security? And ultimately, that's how God provides for her. All right. So let's get into our final segment here on the episode. And that is through the week. I am ready to face any challenges that might be foolish enough to face me. So here we are. We're talking about showing honor to others as we wrap up this conversation about servanthood. And the first challenge that we're going to do along with you is a reading challenge. Yeah, we're inviting everyone to read that passage from Luke 4 about Jesus reading from the scroll of Isaiah. It's Luke 4, 16 to 30. And then Romans 12, 9 to 13. 1 Peter 2, verse 13 through chapter 3, verse 7. Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. And 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 26. And we closed the last episode by joking about this honor competition <laughs> in Romans 12, 10. You're going down in this oh, honor beat competition. You down with honor. <laughs> and it comes from Romans 12, 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And I do find it a fun idea <laughs> to do that. I, I think Christians, I see Christians enjoying themselves, engaging in this all the time, even though I don't think most of us think of it as a competition. It is fun to have this 
one-upsmanship in showing honor to each other. Somebody does something for you and then you send them a thank you card and you do something for them and then they send you a thank you card for the thank you card. Oh man, I was just going to talk about that. My (laughs) wife does this all the time. It's awesome. It's like, when is the thank you spiral ever going to (laughs) end? I love that. (laughs) And honor has to do with value. It has to do with esteem. So another good word, I think, to go with this is appreciation. You can hear that financial worth kind of idea in that seeing people as extraordinary and worthy of me lifting them up, treating them with the greatest respect. So I'm going to appreciate everyone else, if I can, more than they appreciate me which is the opposite of our instincts and that pride of life that would nudge us towards trying to get praise, get appreciation, be thought of as valued. And this is one of the great ways of reversing that, of us overcoming our selfish, lower impulses (laughs) and starting to engage in this joyful, happy game of loving people and appreciating people. Well, as you say, there really is a tendency and our natural tendency probably not to honor people in this way and not to be thoughtful and kind to others. We talked about that on the last episode, but it's just something we always need to be aware of. And fighting our natural instincts sometimes is going to be difficult, which kind of leads into our next challenge, which is a reflect challenge. And that is, is my respect reserved only for those I view as worthy? That's a deep one. Honestly, that hits pretty close (laughs) to home for me. Last episode, we talked about red flag phrases. I just want to. I was just thinking like, but they and then fill in the blank. Like, that's something we can all say. Yeah, I would show them honor, but they whatever. And maybe some of Jesus most challenging words for me in the Sermon on the Mount are about treating my enemies well. And maybe you can relate to this too. Matthew 5, verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And I don't think he's talking about sinless perfection here. I think what he's talking about is to be whole or complete, to basically view other people, like a whole category of other people that you might just write off or discount, God didn't view those people as someone to write off or discount. He looked at everyone and sent his son for everyone. If we want to have that holistic view of humanity, then we need to be willing to rise above these excuses to write someone off or excuse my poor behavior because, well, somebody else's attitudes or actions don't deserve it. I guess to put it simply, it doesn't matter what they've done or how they feel about me. Am I willing to, like Jesus, forgive them for they know not what they're doing? Yeah, uh, that but they is a great red flag. (laughs) Our next challenge is a request challenge for us to pray, Lord, help me honor everyone made in your image. So if you spent your life serving and studying under some great master, say Frank Lloyd Wright, and he was your teacher, he's your hero. Every time you go into a Frank Lloyd Wright house, every time you pass one, there'd probably be some kind of respect, a bit of appreciation for what he did. And if you saw someone tearing down one of his buildings or you see someone (laughs) painting spray paint on Gamage Auditorium or something. or I'm sure they've done that, but that wouldn't fly. You would be so upset. Yeah. 
And Proverbs 14.31 says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. And that helps me. Am I thumbing my nose at God, this man's maker, by looking down on one of his creations? The one I honor most considered this creature his masterwork. And am I not going to honor him? Am I not going to help him when he's in need? Am I going to look down or neglect this person that carries this special value and esteem in the eyes of the Lord? Absolutely. And going back to Boaz in our story about Ruth, I mean, he could have very easily at the very first encounter between the two of them, he could have looked at her as just some dirt poor nobody from Moab and moved on. Mm. I mean, he could have very easily just treated her like that. But the story definitely did not play out like that because he viewed her as worth it. Absolutely. So what's our respond challenge? All right. So for our respond challenge, we encourage you to take action this week by finding a way to honor your parents today. And if you're younger listening to this episode, this one is definitely for you. But even if you're older, this is for you. I think a lot of times we try not to pick challenges that only apply to a select group of people or that only a few people can do. We try to make it more general. And so maybe if your parents are gone or maybe if you're not on speaking terms with your parents or there's some difficulty between you and your relationship, use this opportunity maybe and modify it to show honor to someone who's been a parental influence in your life. And I can think of a lot of people who aren't my parents who guided me as I grew up, and I feel like they're basically my parents. And so what I see here in this challenge is that there's honestly no age cutoff that we ever see in relation to our parents. In the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5, Jesus' words in Matthew 19, and what Paul has to say in Ephesians 6, all talking about honoring our parents, they don't limit it to respecting our parents only while we're under their roof. And I think that's really important. Kids, if you're thinking someday I'm going to get out of the house and I don't have to listen to my parents anymore. Well, you may not have to obey everything that they say, but you definitely have to honor them and you definitely need to respect them. It's about constantly living with respect for their leadership, for their love and for their really their long suffering patience toward us. I mean, they had to deal with us when we were basically (laughs) hard to deal with. (laughs) If I think about what my parents went through. I will definitely say they, they put up with a lot. As a parent, you come to appreciate more and more how much your parents did for you and how insufferable you must have been, <laughs> you know? And, and uh, there's just times when they had to have forbearance at such a high level for us. And then just all the acts of service, all the meals that you ate that your mom made, all the days of hard work that your dad did to take care of you. Just it's worth constant honor. And Jesus makes quite a point whenever he rebukes the Pharisees for the, the whole Corbin idea that, You need to always hold in high esteem your parents. Exactly. So in some way that they're comfortable with this week, appreciate them. Maybe they wouldn't enjoy you blasting it out on social media or making some big public display about it, but just do something that they would appreciate to show them how much you honor them and respect them and really love who they are and what they've done for you. And sneak up on them. Do a sneak (laughs) attack. Don't wait for Mother's Day, which is coming up. Oh, yes. Do something different. So, yeah, finally, we have our 
Reach Out Challenge, where we invite you to start a good conversation by asking someone a spiritual question. So the question I'm going to ask Brian is, when does showing honor come easy and when is it a challenge? I was thinking about this quite a bit earlier and I'm going to kind of back up to like a 10,000 foot view here and just say, when I see people as humans, I tend to honor them easily. But when I label people and see them as just a category, then it's easy not to show them respect and honor. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, like the most challenging times I've ever had in respecting people have come when I just assume something about them, maybe labeling them as one particular kind of person, not investigating into their life further. Writing people off is an easy thing to do. It's really the lazy thing to do. And I'm ashamed to say that I, I just have treated people in some ways where I feel almost justified by not showing them respect because I just didn't really see them as a person. And when I've done better at this, honestly, it's been because I've prayerfully prepared myself to see people as a complex human with feelings and joys and specifically challenges, just like I have. I mean, how would I want to be treated? And that's the whole reason why the golden rule exists. It's like, look at how you want to be treated and then treat people the same way. And I think that involves seeing them as a whole person. Would I want someone to cut me some slack if I made a mistake? Would I want someone to be patient with me? In those moments where I'm being grateful to someone, it's usually because I'm seeing them like I'm almost looking in a mirror of my own life mm. and I'm doing it for me and I'm doing it because that's what I would want somebody to do to me. I keep seeing this picture now of all these different people that you're interacting with wearing colored t-shirts with one word on each one, <laughs> you know, like I've reduced you to one to category, one category this of is, person. Yeah. This is who you are now to me. So I started thinking about what is it that I honor most in people? What just naturally comes easy for me to honor? And I think humble wisdom is one quick answer that comes to mind whenever I see people that I can see the depth and the insight they bring, but they carry it with such lowliness. And at the same time, that gives me my answer to the next question. When is it a challenge? When I don't see that in someone, when I see someone is both brash and illogical in my estimation as I'm yeah. judging and evaluating, I don't think they have wisdom in their actions or in their views. It's easy for me to think dismissively of them I say this to my shame. I don't always catch myself for a while. And that not only hurts maybe how I treat them, but it hurts me. It damages how I listen to them. I can't hear what's behind their words, the gem of wisdom underlying what they're doing. It's all hidden. It's just, it makes you, if I could say this in a way metaphorically and you hear me well, it makes you less human, less of the, the human that you're meant to be. You are not carrying with you the spirit that God wants you to interact with people. I am not doing that whenever I start seeing other people as small. That makes me smaller. Yeah, that's good. I think that's exactly what we're talking about on this episode. When we're talking about honoring people, just outdo one another in showing honor, even if that person isn't quote unquote worthy of your honor. Because Jesus did it for you in dying on the cross and pay it forward. Yeah, imagine if Jesus showed honor in equal measure to what someone like myself had proven worthy of. Uh, that could sure. be the tragedy of our lives. 
All right, so what are we talking about on the next episode? Well, from tragedy to joy. (laughs) We're going to talk about joy. We're going to spend four weeks all about joy, obligatory jokes about my name being joy. It will happen. Noted and and moving on, yes. And our first week, we're going to talk about the joy of receiving the gospel. We've tried to start each week with talking about the truth and how the truth affects us in any particular attribute or mark of the master. So here we'll talk about how the gospel creates joy in us. I'm looking forward to it, and hopefully you are as well. And that'll be on the next episode. And until then, thank you so much, everyone, for tuning into the Bible Geeks podcast. You can find us on our website at BibleGeeks.fm. You can find show notes for this episode in your podcast player of choice or at BibleGeeks.fm slash 105. You can also get involved with our cross-training series over at BibleGeeks.fm slash cross-training. And if you want to get into our Facebook group, we've got a link in the show notes for you to click on and go join up and jump into the conversation along with us. Until next week, everyone, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom. Shalom.